Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. If you take the time to look at the SEC filings for Meta Platforms, Inc., the company that operates Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, you will find various disclosures about its ongoing legal battles. One major source of legal trouble for Facebook is the 2018 Cambridge Analytica scandal, which was exposed in March that year. The SEC filing states that, quote, beginning on March 20th, 2018, multiple putative class actions and derivative actions were filed in state and federal courts in the United States and elsewhere against us and certain of our directors and officers alleging violations of securities laws, breach of fiduciary duties, and other causes of action in connection with our platform and user data practices, as well as the misuse of certain data by a developer that shared such data with third parties in violation of our terms and policies and seeking unspecified damages and injunctive relief, unquote. Another area at issue is around competition. The SEC filing notes that, quote, we are subject to various litigation and government inquiries and investigations, formal or informal, by competition authorities in the United States, Europe, and other jurisdictions. Such investigations, inquiries, and lawsuits concern, among other things, our business practices in the areas of social networking or social media services, digital advertising, and our mobile or online applications, as well as our acquisitions, unquote. That all adds up to significant antitrust concerns for the company. To get an update on some of the key cases under consideration, I spoke with one particularly keen observer of Meta. My name is Jason Kent. I'm the CEO of Digital Content Next. Jason, what is Digital Content Next? Digital Content Next is a trade association of premium publishers. And so we do typical work of research, advocacy, policy work, pull together executives in the publisher industry to learn from each other. Uh, But our focus and remit is entirely on the future of the digital content creation industry. It's safe to say that you are a chief critic of Facebook of Meta as a company. You're you know, one of the people I think of as following its travails most closely. Um, you're very active on Twitter, uh, where you are a kind of tormentor of Facebook, I think of in some cases. How do you think about your relationship with Facebook as a company with regard to your role and what DCN does? Yeah, it's interesting to hear it described that way. I, I you know, it, it certainly has become an increasing large concern, the company and its, you know, outsized role. We've never seen a company like Facebook in the history of media, let alone, you know, the internet, um, with the reach and the impact it has in how information flows and influences. And so the relationship, I think it hit a key point in probably 2016 when I sent a letter to, to Mark Zuckerberg. And to be fair, I also sent it to Sundar Pakai at Google expressing concerns. And, you know, I think it was a timely, a timely memo and letter, open letter, we published it even to, to what we've seen now play out over the next six years, which is essentially, you know, in the case of, of, of Facebook, you know, the halos really come off and, and, and there's been, you know, they've, they've given a wealth of material for us all to be concerned about. And, and I've tried to make sure it's documented and understood. 
particularly as the impact it has on the news and entertainment ecosystem. Do you think there's a consensus in your membership or in the news and media business about Facebook's role, or is it uh, largely kind of considered an adversary? How do you think that more broadly the industry looks at Facebook these days? Yeah, I think that from the industry perspective, it's, a, it's more of a zero trust relationship. It's more transactional. Uh, they see the company as a important audience, particularly with Instagram, that is a requirement to do business. You know, I think they, you know, from an, that plays into the antitrust concerns around the company, but you can't not have a business relationship with Facebook. You can't not recognize its importance to reaching the public, particularly younger people. And so it's just more of a, a lack of, of trust. It's, you know, it's a marketing and transactional relationship. My concern is that they play such an important role that that can't, that can't be the relationship forever, right? They have to have more ownership and responsibility they have to civil society. And so they, and they need to be held accountable for the mistakes of the past still. Otherwise, we can't expect anything to be different going forward. So one of the things that I notice you doing regularly, of course, is following very closely all of the proceedings and the cases that have sprung up around uh, Meta, around Facebook and Instagram. And you, I think of is a source of endless evidentiary fragments that emerge from legal documents and uh, government hearings and the like. And I want to talk about some of those today. In particular, we'll go through a handful of federal cases that are underway at the moment, um, hoping to give the listener a sense of what are some of the legal issues that Facebook currently faces, as you say, in that effort by some to pursue accountability against the company for what they regard as potential crimes. So for each one, I'm hoping that we can go through and hit some of the key points, the underlying issue in the case, where the case is in the process, and what are the possible ramifications of each one. So I want to start in the realm of antitrust. And there are two cases right now that I know that you're focused on. One's in the District of Columbia, which is the Federal Trade Commission antitrust complaint. What's going on with this one? Well, it's been the, the ruling as it can move forward. And it, you know, there was a parallel case that the state AGs also filed, which is under appeal. So let's put that aside. But the FTC case um, did get the green light to proceed from the judge. And so, you know, Facebook had an argument that the that the market wasn't properly defined, uh, the social network, personal social networking market that was that's in the case, but the judge said, no, this, this can move forward. And the, the claims are, you know, that matter are probably around the acquisitions that Facebook made, Instagram and WhatsApp, most importantly, and, and a bunch of smaller companies that they either they bought or buried. And why it matters is the FTC is seeking to break up the company, right? And so as, you know, as much as the case continues to move forward and that pressure to divest Instagram, in particular from Facebook, that's a very, that's obviously a very, very big deal. And, and you know, what I've told uh, many over the last few years, I think we should all reflect on is if, you know, if we kind of look at what's happened and the concerns around Facebook over the last, let's call it five years, and we reflect on if they actually had to compete with Instagram and how the two companies would behave or behave differently. I think that's the key question. Now, this, as you mentioned, the uh, you know initially 
this was turned back by the court. There was a kind of consideration that, you know, it hadn't met muster essentially to be considered. Um, What do you think helped it across the line this time? Uh, What is it that made the court look at this complaint differently in the second round? In the initial filing, they just didn't put in all the metrics and they hit it from, you know, they, they didn't have numbers to back up the dominance of Facebook in this category of personal social networking. And so they included the metrics and, you know, and they did from multiple angles, right? So they said, and anybody that's familiar with, with digital media, there's lots of different metrics that we can all debate, but they looked at, you know, from time spent on the platform as a percentage of time spent, they looked at it as a percentage of active users. And so they kind of hit it from, I think, three different angles. And, and in all cases, it was pretty hard to, to argue that, that Facebook isn't dominant. And so that, that answered the, the, what seemed to be the, the big failure in the first filing. And the judge allowed them to, to fix that and add the data to back it up. So let's move a little, I guess, west and look at another antitrust case that's under consideration, this time in Northern California. What's at stake here? So that's uh, Northern District, California. It's a federal case. And that also is, is moving forward. And I think that the two things that are, it's a very similar case to what the FTC filed, but I think the two dimensions that are, are probably most important and could get very uncomfortable for Facebook is the consumer plaintiffs in the case really lean into Facebook's abuse of privacy and data. If anybody's familiar with uh, the research that Dina Srinivasan did around Facebook and antitrust, it echoes that quite a bit in terms of you have a, a social networking platform, which at the very beginning made privacy kind of its number one concern for its audience. And then as it got bigger and grew and grew and became dominant, it really abused that trust is the allegation at least that it abused that trust over time and really exploited the user's data because it could get away with it. And so that element of data and privacy integrated with antitrust, which is really becoming a global discussion and concern, is really front and center in this case. The second element of the case, which I also would highlight, is there's a set of advertiser plaintiffs in the case too. Their allegations include the Jedi Blue allegations for allegedly colluding with Google around the project Jedi Blue, it's called. And I'm sure the listener can can look it up and read more, but you have two the two most dominant players in the advertising marketplace having a, a secret deal in which, or at least the elements of the, the deal were, were not widely known that, that affected the marketplace and potentially rigged it. So that's also in that case and should be very uncomfortable because it ultimately, it, this is a civil lawsuit but but when you get into market rigging you can you can get into uh, section 1 criminal allegations too when you've got executives signing that deal so potential criminal ramifications in in this particular case absolutely yeah and you know that also those same allegations are in the Google antitrust lawsuit that was filed by the state AGs led by Texas in which at least reporting has said that the justice department also may take up you know and it's pretty the discovery we've seen on that deal between Facebook and Google is pretty eye-opening, let's just say, uh, especially on the, you know what's come out in the Google case, because you've got executives on bo- at both companies who seem to understand the motivations behind the deal too, which was 
you know, the way it reads from the internal emails is to, to keep Facebook out of competing with Google in return for, for other benefits. And so, you know, back to the, the Facebook antitrust suit, it also documents a pattern of behavior where, and, and it goes through, I think, three different examples, Netflix, uh, Foursquare, eBay, um, and then Google. So four examples where in various categories of business where Facebook could be a threat, you know, Netflix in the case of video, as they were rolling out Facebook video, Foursquare regarding location placement, Google regarding ad tech. Facebook was a threat if they moved into those businesses and instead they did a deal according to the allegations where they said, okay, we won't get into this business, but in return, you will give us reciprocal data that will help make our advertising targeting business even stronger um, and strengthen the moat around it. And so there's interesting examples across category leaders, eBay in the case of commerce. So um, the discovery on that case should be very interesting, let's just say. So antitrust cases are not known to move quickly. Uh, what can we expect in terms of the timing on either of these in terms of progress or resolution? I think you're, you're spot on. That's the biggest concern. But I, you know, in the case of the, you know, the federal antitrust case, you know, the, the, we've already started to learn a lot through discovery. And it's, you know, the FTC case was originally filed at the end of 2020. And, and with the recognition, it would take a while, but it's, it's been two years and they are moving along and they do seek to break up the company. So, and, and they are very informative of both legislation that's happening too, to try to also solve some of these concerns. And then I think probably most importantly that also gets missed is it's really hard to buy other companies, right? As a, you know, so Facebook, you know, buying other companies in particular categories is, is much more challenging when they've got these lawsuits underway. And so it really does freeze them up too. I, I wouldn't in any way dismiss their impact. I think they're hugely uh, important at this point and they will, you know, they'll roll into deeper discovery. The FTC case will now. And um, I'd, ex, you know, I think the, the plan is to, to actually have it in the court um, trying the case next year or so. So let's stay in the Northern District of California and look at another case, one around potential fraud, the idea that Facebook may have inflated its reach. What's happening in this case? That case is now four years old and to the point of these things taking time, but the judge just certified the class on it. And so it is also moving forward. I think it's probably a decent chance Facebook will do whatever it can to settle the case, particularly because of the, the addition of the fraud allegation part of the complaint. And that's a case for the, for the listeners in which they may have heard about where Facebook's potential reach as presented to advertisers was inflated and it you know, became obvious because it got larger than the actual census population when you broke it down. And so the U.S. census population, so obviously they can't, they can't reach more, you call it 18 to 34 year old men than they actually exist in the U.S. And so as it went through discovery, um, there was pretty concerning emails that backed up the case that Facebook, the, at least the allegations that Facebook knew about this issue and chose not to disclose it. Facebook's argument seems to be that advertisers don't buy that way. That you know, even if when you go in there and you say, "I want to target this demographic and this location and these types of people," 
that the number that Facebook presents to the buyer isn't how they actually buy the advertising that they buy on a click or on a purchase, but the, the data underneath that doesn't support it. And frankly, and the, if you talk to people that spend money on advertising at, at the very high level and strategically that say, you know, we're going to move this, especially at the big agency holding companies, and we're going to go spend hundreds of millions of dollars on this platform versus this platform. The actual number of people <laughs> and the breakdown, of the number of people do matter when you're making those decisions ahead of time and planning. And so, so it'll be very interesting to follow that the case from a publisher perspective, putting on my publisher hat, it's the s- second case I can recall where there's evidence that Facebook's metrics were, were inflated and then they chose not to tell the public about it. And so when I make a point about the lack of trust in the company, these cases really matter because you know, it's, it's one thing to, to, especially when you're moving as fast as a company and as big as a company like Facebook, to make mistakes or have issues with your metrics because you're grading your own homework. But when you find out that you've made a mistake and then you don't correct the record, how you act after you make that mistake and discover it, that really matters to the trust of the, the industry and, and whether or not you can really can grade your own homework for sure. So be watching that one. And what do you think in terms of timing on this one? How long can we expect it to go? You mentioned that it's been underway for some time. Well, I think the it's a milestone that it, the class has now been certified and the discovery on it's been very interesting. And now I think settlement talks probably accelerate. And so, you know, if they, if they don't settle, then, which we, I would bet that they will, but if they don't, then I think later in the fall, Later in this year is when that one's expected to start to to move into the court. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press/podcast and subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. You're listening to my conversation with Jason Kent, the CEO of Digital Content Next. Now, back to the discussion. So let's come back east and go to Delaware, where there is a lawsuit that I think joins together multiple plaintiffs looking at essentially what could be a cover-up of the company's involvement uh, in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. What's at stake in this one? Um, In Delaware, that's the shareholder lawsuit. And it does stem from the original Cambridge Analytica revelations in 2018. And it's filed by pension funds and including one of the largest in the world, the California teachers. I think what matters for that lawsuit and what's at stake for Facebook is, one, it's a result of, these are pension funds that I don't think likely are to pursue a case unless they think it's worth the time and the money. And they've got enormous resources, obviously, to, to take on a case. We talk about institutional money that can take on a company like Facebook. They probably have more resources than our maybe even our federal government in that case. So they sued to inspect the board of directors communications at Facebook after Facebook settled with the FTC for $5 billion and with the SEC for $100 million, which happened 
and it was announced on the same day in 2019. And, and they sued because at least the, the original question that they asked was, why did, would Facebook pay $5 billion? There'd never been a settlement anywhere close to that level before. And Mark Zuckerberg in particular, but Cheryl Sandberg also had avoided being deposed and discovery. And there were a lot of questions in that case around how long Facebook knew about the Cambridge Analytic issues. And at the same time, executives and board members were exploiting, you know, either making money off the stock or also their influence and their unique roles being on the board of directors. And while there was clearly an underlying issue with the way Facebook treated data, so they inspected the documents, and then that ultimately led to a derivative, a, a derivative suit, which they're now suing for a variety of issues, the company, based on what they were able to see from those documents, which we haven't, the public hasn't seen, but clearly there was something in those documents that made them feel like they have a good case. So let's stay with Cambridge Analytica for a second. There are a couple more cases I want to talk about. One in D.C. Superior Court, one again in the Northern District, California, both related to consumer protection. Can we start with D.C.? Yeah, sure. Um, That's the Attorney General D.C. uh, Racine, and that is a Cambridge Analytica lawsuit. It has a lot of the same elements as the Delaware shareholder suit in terms of when did they, when did Facebook know that they had an issue of their data being used in ways that the, certainly the user wouldn't have expected and was against what Facebook claimed was their policy. You have apps that were out there. And I think in the case of, I should say this with Cambridge Analytica, it's too often that I think the discussion goes immediately towards the, the 2016 election and political debates and but more material is that there was this, at least in, from the business perspective for Facebook, there was a third party that was able to siphon off and harvest significant amounts of personal data and then sell it to Cambridge Analytica in clear violation of the user's expectations and Facebook's reported terms of use. And so the DC case that you're referencing uh, starts to get into discovery. And actually there was a, a deposition that was originally ordered of Mark Zuckerberg to find out again, when did they know that they had an issue and kind of the timeline of how they dealt with it? Because Cambridge Analytica was just one example. And there were many other apps that had the same access to that data and could have abused it. What's interesting um, when you ask me about DC versus California is the DC case seemed to be moving along at a pretty healthy clip. And it's actually where we, we learned through some discovery early on that there was a whole, a few dozen employees it appeared at Facebook that knew that there were problems with Cambridge Analytica back in the fall of 2015. So many months before the press even started to report on issues. And so, so there was interesting discovery that was happening, but a new judge was assigned to the case a couple months ago and it seems to have turned in Facebook's favor quite significantly because that the new judge seems to be um, shutting down discovery and in Facebook's kind of narrative of this thing's been going on too long. At least the, the arguments that their lawyers have been making um, seems to have, I don't I hesitate to say snowed, but it's uh, kind of uh, the new judge seems to, to be wanting to end the, the discovery process, which 
if you followed it over the last few years, would be incredibly premature from my mind because uh, Facebook has resisted most of the discovery in the case. The DC case is very similar to Northern District California case. And the difference is the new judge really uh, shutting down the, the DC discovery where in Northern California, where really the same efforts by Facebook's law firm to, to halt discovery, halt depositions of Mark Zuckerberg and Cheryl Sandberg um, have really been called out by the judge just in the last couple months. And I, I don't know if I've ever heard a judge scorch the defendant's law firm, Facebook's law firm, um, quite like uh, happened a few months ago. And so um, the, the judge has now invited the plaintiffs to file for sanctions, and they have. And Facebook's been called out very clearly uh, for discovery abuse over the last four years. And it's accelerating um, in a pretty interesting way, where there's a, probably three or four different elements of discovery that that clearly have Facebook super uncomfortable, but are going to move forward in the next 60 to 90 days. I happened to listen to that hearing where the judge excoriated Facebook's lawyers for their behaviors in the case to date. And I kind of agree with your characterization. It, it definitely was not a comfortable conversation. <laughs> no, it was not. It was not. So, and it, you know, importantly, the, the judge ordered that Facebook have a senior executive at all discovery uh, mediation sessions going forward that could make decisions on the spot regarding discovery. And even said, if, if you need to run those decisions up the flagpole, then you need to, to bring all those decision makers with you to the hearing, um, including Mr. Zuckerberg himself. And so it seems to be uh, past the, the patience and limits of Facebook's uh, avoidance of discovery. Let's move on now to what I think of as one of the most interesting and to my mind as you know, not a lawyer, uh, confounding cases that will probably get dealt with in the year ahead. And this is another case in Northern California focused on Myanmar. Um, what's going on with this one? Well, that was a case that was filed at the end of last year anonymously, I think under uh, Jane Doe, but it's for the UN's documented documentation of the genocide that happened in Facebook's, uh, the allegations are at least of Facebook's role which the UN covered in their report in their amplification of, of hate speech across their, their platform and in failing to take down, you know, particular posts that, that were problematic. And so it's a complex case because it involves citizens abroad, you know, as the plaintiffs that is in the California courts. And I think it's filed under Myanmar Burmese law. And so, and then we've got elements in the U S law, like, uh, CDA 230, which your audience probably knows, which at least act a, it acts as a shield against liability um, for things that happen on Facebook's platform. You know, you mentioned that UN human rights experts investigating the genocide in Myanmar spotted Facebook's role or cited Facebook's role in spreading hate speech there. Facebook's own investigation into the situation essentially found fault with the company's practices, as I understand it. And yet this case is interesting to me, not perhaps because it 
is unlikely that, that, you know, there was a role or perhaps that there should be some compensation of some sort or some liability, but more for the kind of legal mechanics underneath it. How, how does it work to try to assert, you know, a foreign nation's legal context in an American court? I think we're about to find out. <laughs> so, you know, that, and it, it was filed abroad too, I think, outside the U.S. for uh, citizens that live in Europe. And so what probably ends up mattering more because you're, uh, you know, in a legal dispute that is outside my elements by far is the public discussion around it also because it involves genocide. It's a hundred and fifty billion dollar lawsuit, if I recall correctly, before you even get to punitive damages. And so it got a lot of attention when it was filed. And to your point, as much as there was internal awareness and knowledge of the issues, then it, you know, it really does further the the need for the discussion around the role of Facebook in providing, you know, amplification, velocity, reach to to posts, right? That it's one thing to have these posts exist on their platform. Users can post whatever they want on the platform within their rules. And if they, they know about it, they take it down, we can have that discussion. But, but this is, I think, more about Facebook taking those posts and accelerating them, right? And targeting them and providing amplification to other people and what their role and liability is there. And so that conversation um, is happening in you know, a variety of places, courts and also parliaments um, in you know, U.S. Congress. And so um, I think this case just brings more attention to the issue. And Facebook's role as a platform that reaches billions of people that you know, can actually have consequences that are as real as, as genocide or the war right now in, in Ukraine um, and or insurrections, right? So there's, there's a recognition of just how powerful this big com- this company is. And when you tie that back to some of our other discussions around, you know, governance and, and responsibility, do you want to have one person ultimately that has that much control and power in Mark Zuckerberg? One of the things that I note in this complaint around Myanmar is the reference to the whistleblowers, to Francis Haugen, to Sophie Zhang. What effect do you think that these most recent whistleblowers have had on any of the legal action against Facebook? You know, some of the allegations were already in these cases or cases that were filed before these whistleblowers came out. And some of the evidence was coming out on discovery. But to have actual whistleblowers bring that evidence directly to the public through the through the press or through filings, with the SEC in the case of, of Francis Haugen, I think just brings further confidence to the problems in the cases. And so, like we talked about the inflated reach issue and and I believe one of Francis Haugen's uh, whistleblower complaints to the SEC included that inflated, potent, the inflated reach metric. And particularly with the SEC, what's interesting I'm going to be watching with all these cases is, you know, Facebook for a long time has... If you look, read through their risks as a company, you know these risks are kind of identified as potential risks. And you know our platform is really big; it could cause problems in the world. Or uh, data, you know, data and privacy could, you know, if, if we had a big breach, it could cause problems for our underlying business. A lot of these cases involve like things where that risk was actually real; it was already known by Facebook. And 
versus just a hypothetical or potential. And so when you learn that over time, they've been saying that these are risks that could happen, but they actually knew maybe that they, they were happening and they were just using PR to try to, to deny or deflect it, that that becomes a real issue too, in terms of the SEC and, and risks to the company. And, you know, we can't forget that they had the largest stop in the history of the largest drop in the history of the stock market ever just a few months ago. So these risks are real. This document in particular, I would recommend listeners look at is a kind of extraordinary account of Facebook's role in Myanmar, sort of TikTok as the cases and the facts specific to it are laid out. You have both the broader context of Facebook's role in Myanmar with the complaint concluding that Facebook's admissions that it should have done more to prevent the genocide in Burma and its subsequent efforts, if any, came too late for the tens of thousands of Rohingya who have been murdered, raped, and tortured, and for the hundreds of thousands who are now living in squalid refugee camps and displaced from their homes across the world. I should say that language comes just after the complaint describes Facebook's own belated acceptance that it had played a role in these events. And then the facts specific to the Jane Doe that you mentioned, the plaintiff, are, are really something, you know, 16 years old, her father detained, beaten, tortured for two weeks by the Myanmar military. And then, of course, you know, she is forced to flee the country, fearing that she'd be abducted or sexually assaulted or, or even killed. And, you know, her, her account of how she, uh, you know, made it across uh, Bangladesh and Thailand and Malaysia and what ultimately uh, came of her life now here in the United States, you know, really an extraordinary tale, almost zooming out first to the broader geopolitical context and then zooming in to the, the suffering of this one individual. That's the human element of, you know, each of these cases, some of them hit on the business concerns, some of them hit on data and consumer protection concerns, but that case, you know, brings to light the, the real civil society impact and, and yeah. Wow. Jason, I, I do understand that you look at these things out of a professional interest, that you are following these things very closely. You've been involved in digital media and advertising for, you know, close to three decades. Is there something deeper here in this for you? It's a good question. I, you know, I think that, you know, there is a, no doubt the, that this affects the way news entertainment and our publisher members content is, is both distributed and monetized but one company and the power it has and too much power over the world is certainly clearly problematic. And, and the evidence, you know, I think with all these cases, you know, and it's, it's, it's hard to, to follow them, them all. I understand that, that each case has its own complexities, but there is common themes that connect between them all. And being able to, to understand those, I think, are critically important to understanding the, the, the consequences and the importance of, of change at Facebook. All of the cases all seem to document this issue of a company that has built in, an incredibly powerful platform at the same time has not kept up its own responsibility for that platform and its consequences and the timeline in which they were aware of issues, whether it be inflated numbers or data abuse that 
you know, could be misused by very powerful political actors to hate speech and, and genocide, um, the timeline of awareness and what they did about it, while in parallel creating enormous wealth at the company, you know, I think becomes a, a very clear issue. I think it's why the SEC's involvement on some of these cases becomes really, really important, frankly, because if you're, if you're treating risk to a company as hypothetical, while at the same time, you're, you're benefiting from it and creating enormous wealth, um, then, you know, I think that needs to be, needs to be uh, dealt with. And probably uniquely, the SEC is in a place to do that. The Francis Haugen papers really put the spotlight on Facebook's leadership, ultimately, as being the kind of backstop to a lot of these questions. And I wonder if you see in these documents a similar concern about a handful of individuals, ultimately, at the top of the company, the culture they've created, people like, of course, Sheryl Sandberg, but also Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's why the Delaware the Delaware shareholder case is the one that's, to me, most interesting is because it most closely documents the, the roles of the individuals, both in, you know, in the decisions that were made. You know, Cheryl Sandberg is a very interesting leader in that you know, she's only testified, I think, once that I'm aware of. And in the case of her hearing in 2018, at least the New York Times reported that there was a number of areas that were off limits that she didn't even have to answer questions on So at the hearing. And so she plays a kind of unique role as Mark Zuckerberg's partner in crime. I use that uh, with a question, big question mark um, next to it. But if you look at some of these allegations and, you know, how much how much have they protected each other um, is a big question mark. The and then the board members that were very, very close to to Mark, you know, ultimately the the case kind of documents how, you know, and, and the core of the, the Delaware case is that, you know, express it, that it was futile to, to even go to the board about, about the issues because uh, ultimately Mark controls the board, controls the main committees and, you know, and, and the company. And so it's one, one person uh, that's in charge of everything. In my mind, I try to hold that one person conceptually next to this Jane Doe. Uh, and and to kind of make sure that I keep both those people uh, in mind as equals. This company, to my view, um, I think your members are right to have little trust. I would argue perhaps that governments, citizens should have little trust at this stage. I think it's fair. I think it's, it's been evident for a few years. And when you look at the exploration of new new platforms or new places that they may go, whether it be video systems to communicate with each other or, you know, virtual worlds, but you have to go back to the pattern of behavior that's been documented and, you know, the the same leaders that are still responsible and ask yourself why on earth you'd expect uh, anything different going forward um, to give them that much control over, you know, future ways in which we communicate, you know, across society. And so I think the trust factor is, and the lack of it is is real, and I don't think that can be repaired by the by the same governance and leadership still being in place. Perhaps there will be some accountability either through these cases or through other means as this information comes to light. And I appreciate you for keeping us up with all the details, and hope you'll continue to do so. Thank you for having me, Justin. Thank you for your work.
That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guest. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.